Treason, Sedition, Rebellion. This is the heritage of the American patriot. Those revolutionaries who stood on principle to fight against tyranny no matter the cost. And that spirit lives strong today in the activists and freedom fighters who fight against the authoritarian state. Each in their own way, each with their own mission, united for the cause. had the idea to run on a platform of fuck the police prior to actually winning the primary. I mean, AOC is a drama queen and she's full of shit. They said, you don't get to tell us no, we're in the state health department, and I said, hell no. You brought a freaking guillotine. People already pushing back in ways that didn't even need any votes to be cast. I'm not ratting on anybody, and I did what I did, so you're going to have to give me what the law says you have to give me. You want to make the world a better place? Have some babies, and raise them to not be stupid. Hope I don't get canceled. Talk to you. These are the people whose stories I'm here to share. I'm Justin O'Donnell, and this is Submersive. Man, governments are not going to like this shit. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, activists, anarchists, and people of the internet, thank you for tuning in to Subversive 75. As always, I'm your host, Justin O'Donnell, and before we get started, just remember whatever platform you listen on, whether YouTube Live, Odyssey, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or on Anchor or on LRN.FM, you can help grow the show by liking, commenting, subscribing, and most of all, sharing with your friends. And if you enjoy the content, you can join our awesome team of insurgents over on Patreon, at visiting patreon.com slash o'donnell again that's patreon.com slash o'donnell and make sure to check out our sponsor snackswag.com where you can get all your favorite liberty merch including some official subversive podcast merch we got great designs for t-shirts hoodies mugs patches dresses and skirts i've designed about half of it the other half is just pretty cool so you should head over and check it out it's the only place where you can get your merch that you can literally your messaging on your sleeve with your favorite brand today and if you want to keep in touch between shows make sure to follow me on social media join our community discord channel where you can chat with other fans about the show at any time all of these links are available in the description of the video or podcast you're listening to so make sure to give them a visit today now the trending political drama this week that we're talking about embroiling the country once again centering around a control decision but controversial decision by the supreme court the political divide on the issue of abortion has been building for years and decades but everyone's always assumed that roe v wade was settled law heck even half the supreme court justices on the current bench when they were nominated said they believed supreme court was a roe v wade was settled law and didn't need to be revisited but yet again they did so they overturned roe v wade they found that the previous decision was egregious in its understanding of the 14th amendment and the constitution in general and created rights that weren't implicitly uh, implicit in the Constitution. Now, me personally, I think people should be more upset about the Supreme Court basically removing protections against double jeopardy last week as a much more egregious offense. But nevertheless, it's the social issues that are going to divide this country and put people against their friends and their family and members of their community when they don't need to be. But regardless, for the first time in a long time, this country is having a conversation about the 14th Amendment, which makes the timing of this really auspicious, because joining me for the show tonight to talk all about the 14th Amendment and his new book, 14, now the 14th Amendment, 8, the first 10, author and libertarian and free state project luminary, Ian Underwood. Ian, thanks for joining the show tonight. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Thanks for having me. Luminary. That's quite the word. <laughs> well, I, I've said it before. Uh, I 
do largely consider you probably one of the smartest people I've ever met. You're one of the uh, few people who every single time I've gotten the chance to talk to you, I've come away learning something. And I expect to learn something new tonight as well. Uh, and it's, uh, well, I, I know before the show. Before the show, we were talking, and uh, Jody was chastising me for missing your talk at Porkfest. I am upset I got to miss, had to miss your talk at Porkfest, but I will be going through all the video before it gets uploaded, so I will get the chance to see it at some point at least. So, cool. <laughs> yeah. Now, so the biggest, I, I think, the biggest surprise for those of us who know you and have gotten to know you over the years here in New Hampshire um, about your book is that it's your first book. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I've, done a, I've done a lot of writing. Um, this is the first time it's ever been available in book form. I mean, I spent years and years writing about math for a site, Ask Dr. Math, thousands of pages. Um, I've written a bunch of stuff now for Granite Rock. Uh, writing is actually probably my preferred method of communication. But yeah, this is the first time. And, and so, right, what's happening is I've given a bunch of talks and they're just the right size for books. So I'm <laughs> into books, you know? Yeah, it, it's funny. When I talked to Jody a couple of weeks ago uh, about having you on to talk about the book, we joked because of the timing of Porkfest coming up and my schedule and vacation happening. By the time I got you on, you might have published your second book just because you had everything it's ready to go. Soon, yeah. <laughs> it's actually, so. I think all the, it's just, we got to review it and, uh, get a cover and get some some technical stuff done and it'll be out so awesome well i look forward to it i look forward to actually getting the chance to pick up this book but um the 14th amendment is a really controversial subject um not even just amongst constitutional scholars but now because of the actions of the supreme court and politicians kind of hyping up the issue as a social issue it, it seems like all of a sudden everyone in the country has an opinion on the supreme court and most of them are really ill-informed um like like what was the background like that pushed you to start looking into and decide you were gonna like really take this deep dive into how bad this particular amendment was well so it really always comes down to and, and this is in the book it's you're surrounded by situations where you know people <laughs> pick up the constitution and say you can't restrict my freedom of speech ex except during elections and during advertisements and you know in, in a thousand other ways and you know i've you can't search me without a warrant unless i'm in a car or in an airport or you know any number of exceptions and so you know after you see this for a while you start wondering how is this even possible is it really that these guys can't read is it really <laughs> You know, because it, it starts to feel like that, you know. Um, and so I, I started looking into it and I came across a, a great book called The New Birth of Freedom by, uh, I think his name's Charles Black. He's a law professor at Yale or Columbia. And for the first time, I, I saw this, the, I, I got exposed to this whole idea of the 14th Amendment and incorporation and started thinking about that and how that really you know, was on the one hand, one of the most remarkable things ever where a government actually intended to give away power, <laughs> which, which never happens. Um, but they went through all the steps. They went through Congress. They went through the state legislatures. And the intent was to say, you know what, we are going to bind ourselves further. It's not just the federal government that has to obey the Bill of Rights. It's all the states too, which is amazing. And you know, so, so then you look at it and you go, well, why didn't that work? <laughs> yeah. 
And the reason you have to go back, right? The reason it didn't work is because we had a coup in 1803 that most people aren't aware of, which is uh, a case called Marbury versus Madison. In which, I think, uh, I think we've had a number of coups that people aren't aware of. But. Yeah, well, this was just a really amazing uh, situation where the chief justice said, "You know, we have been called a nation of laws, um, but from now on, we're a nation of judges." In that, it's like from now on, the uh, it's the job of the judiciary to say what the law is, not to say when a law conflicts with the constitution. Not to say whether somebody is in or inside or outside of the law, but what the law is, mm-hmm. which is an incredible thing to say and an even more incredible thing to get away with. It's fascinating because I was just earlier this week doing some research and some reading um, for an article I was writing about the January 6th committee and the meaning of insurrection and the history of insurrection and rebellion in the country. And I was leaning a lot on uh, Thomas Jefferson's letter to William Smith, uh, often like quoted libertarians, conservatives, patriots, people in the three percenter crowd and military fans often quote the quotes of the tree of liberty must be refreshed from Mm -hmm. time to time with the blood of pirates, tyrants and patriots. They missed the whole first half of that letter, though. And the whole first half of that letter is Thomas Jefferson proclaiming to William Smith his issues that he has with the Constitution as drafted. Mm-hmm. And one of the subjects he gets into is about how his experiences in Europe and in Denmark in particular, he doesn't believe a, judi- a supreme judiciary with that much power would be safe for the health of the Republic. Right. And it, it wasn't supposed, you know, it was supposed to be co-equal branches. And as of 1803, it's really the Supreme Court's up here and everybody else works for them. You know, the legislature's there to send suggestions to the court and say, you know, well, we, we think we should have a tax to do this. And say, no, 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 what you really have is a fee. Um, or, you know, or in the case of the 14th Amendment, where it's like, okay, um, you know, that moment in The Princess Bride when... Uh, the one guy turns to the other guy and he's like, you know, you keep using this word and I don't think it means what you think it means. And that was exactly the first, the first uh, chance that the Supreme court got to look at the 14th amendment. And they said, Oh, that phrase privileges and immunities. It actually, it means something completely different, which apparently you weren't aware of what you meant. So we're going to tell you, what you meant (laughs) the me i mean i've never gone beyond the surface of the 14th amendment and my dislike of it and when i write about it and like because i usually always just cursorily refer to it as a problem when i write a lot about slavery and the history of slavery Mm -hmm. and i'll point to the fact that when everyone says we abolished slavery with the 13th amendment like yeah and then the 14th amendment legalized it and regulated it um with the clauses (laughs) okay can you tell me more about that? In which way did it legalize and regulate slavery? Citizenship? Well, just section one, uh, section one, the uh, citizenship clause, naturalization clause. Yeah. The end of it says that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of the law. Basically, right. arguing that the state could decide at its whim to deprive someone of its, their life, liberty, and property, and that it was no longer you could you weren't be held a slave by another man or business or for profit but now the state held the monopoly not just on violence but on slavery and servitude 
Interesting. Okay. I mean, because certainly you could be deprived of liberty and property. I mean, the Fifth Amendment talks about that. So it, there was no surprise that if you commit a crime, you can be deprived right. of your liberty. And as punishment for a crime, you can be deprived of your property. I mean, it's it's an interesting thing that you would look at it that way, because I would look at it as essentially them saying, however we're going to go about it, we have to do it the same for everybody, which of course is also not true. But Right. It, it's nice aspiration to say everybody's going to be treated equally. Well, um, as you say, if the courts are interpreting their own rules and the courts are left to interpret the Constitution at their own discretion. The court gets to decide what due process is and how it's applied to each yes. individual and what what could be taken from them. Yeah, uh, sure. Which, which is, uh, I mean, if you're going to have courts and you're going to have punishment you're going to define crimes at some point you have to operationalize that you have to say here's what we mean by a trial here's what we mean by a conviction here are the rules for those trials and you have to do that at some point and you know again as long as as long as the same stuff applies to everybody it could be bad but it's it's not nearly as bad as as not having equal protection right so, right. <laughs> sure. <laughs> the alternative is so much worse. Um, now, but like, so the the coup with Maybury and like, what what were the immediate ramifications versus the long term ramifications, and were maybe some of the ramifications that lead you to consider it a coup against the Constitution well, unintended or unforeseen? I, I think they were unforeseen. I mean, I also quote a letter from Jefferson. I forget who he wrote it to, but he, he basically says this idea that it's up to the judiciary to say what the law is, turns the Constitution into a thing of wax, which they can mold into any shape they want. And that was like 15 years later. So he may not have actually, it may have taken even Jefferson you know, time to figure that out. To me, that's very reminiscent of the Spooner quote, uh, the Constitution be one thing or another, this much is true. It's either allowed for the tyranny we experience now to exist, or it's been powerless to prevent it. Yes, <laughs> you know. So again, there's there's aspirations, and there's there's what you actually are able to accomplish. Um, which is why, you know, personally, I I don't put a lot of stock in the Constitution. I would prefer to just go back to that one sentence from the Declaration of Independence and start over from there, and say, let's take that seriously. Or we could start with Article 10 of the New Hampshire Constitution. I am partial to that one myself, personally. Um, uh, <laughs> the yeah, right resolution. But, but it doesn't, right, it's, but it's what I like about the, you know, the Declaration is it, it answers the, the two fundamental questions. Why do you have a government at all? And, sure. from where, and from where does it get its power? And if you actually say the purpose of government is to protect rights, not to protect people, not to protect property, to protect rights... A person with intact rights can protect himself. If that's the purpose, and it has to to get its power from consent, as opposed to majority rule, that wipes out almost, you know, ninety five percent of all the bullshit that you don't like. All that stuff goes away. Well, that's an interesting way to phrase it when you say a person with intact rights can protect themselves, and it's an interesting assumption that everyone with intact right intact rights can and in fact is in fact capable of protecting themselves i mean doesn't that almost lend to an argument of might makes right and if you if you can't defend it you can't keep it 
Well, you can't, but one of the things that you're allowed to do if you have a right to free speech and right to property and the right to <laughs> you know travel is you can set up mutual defense societies, which in fact, under this theory, that is what a government is, right? right. We'll all agree to defend each other's rights. Somebody comes on my property, I can call you for help. It happens to you, you can call me for help. That's one of my most fundamentally pressing questions in anarchist philosophies. At what point does your organizing with your neighbors become a government? Um, I mean, it, it, it almost, and to me, if you, if you look at consent, it almost doesn't matter. Right. And so this is something I've talked with some people about, you know, like, well, what does a government by, by consent look like? And the first thing you have to realize is consent is not majority rule. And you also have to realize the people who wrote those documents know that it's not majority rule. So I don't know how many people realize this, but if you look at the constitution, article five, and it says, here are the rules for amending the constitution. And then it says, there's one thing you can't change, right? You can change anything you want, but you can't change this. No state shall be deprived of equal suffrage in the Senate without its consent. Mm -hmm. Consent. If 49 states want to change that, one of them can say no. That's consent. That's not majority rule. So what would government by consent look like? And the way I think of it is just this. that, And this is a fun exercise to do with a group of people. You can do it at a party next time you're drinking. <laughs> sit down and start making a list of sentences of this form. I don't want anyone else to do X to me. Right? I don't want them to, you know, assault me. I don't want them to take my property. I don't want them to hurt this way where somebody's doing something to you. And you make that list. And what I've found when I tried this is it's a surprisingly short list. It's it's hard to get over a dozen things because you pretty much cover everything, you know, in the first four or five. Don't hurt me. Don't take my shit. Right. Yeah, um, don't don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. The fundamental yeah, way to teach libertarianism right? to children. Yeah. <laughs> and so you end up with a list that's a little more specific than that. But here's the thing. So then now you've said this and now you basically apply the golden rule and you say, OK, I agree that if I do any of these things to somebody else, I can be punished. Right now, that's a huge difference between you. I say, I don't want anybody to take my stuff and I don't want anybody to pay somebody else for sex. Right. Which has nothing to do with me. There's no consent. So that's when you step outside consent. And you start using government to control other people rather than to protect your rights. But a government by consent would be terrifically small. And I don't care at that point whether it's anarchist or there's a government. It doesn't matter who you elect because they're basically bookkeepers. So, you know, it's when you go beyond that that you have a problem. And that's why I would, I would if you went back to that one sentence in the declaration, what's the purpose of the government and where does it get its power? And start from there and throw everything else out and say we're not going to have any structures that aren't consistent with this. You would end up with nothing like you have now. So, all right. So, um, what event like Mayberry being the first uh, example you're giving of a coup using the Fourteenth mm -hmm. Amendment? I mean, most people, most your average American, when you ask him about the Fourteenth Amendment, the only real case using the Fourteenth Amendment as precedent that they can cite off the top of their head is Roe v. Wade, and even most of them don't know that Roe v. Wade cited the Fourteenth Amendment as its precedent. Um, but like, well, what Roe v. Wade didn't, and that was well, that was it was uh, the second one, Casey, I think, that where it got Planned Parenthood v. Casey. But, yeah, but they they were saying, look, there's this implied right, and it's just 
you know, the, the 14th Amendment, then they would say they'd have to incorporate it. So um, what ha- what have been some of the most egregious rulings or interpretations of the 14th Amendment that you get into? Because the title of your book is How the 14th Amendment Ate the First Ten. There's well, a lot there because there's a lot in the first ten. You have speech, you have privacy, and you have cruel and unusual punishment. You mm-hmm. have the right to keep and bear arms, the right, right so, to property so, in the third. Right. So, I mean, one of the things I, I this is bare minimum books, and so it, it is not a legal yep. treatise. I am not going to go through <laughs> zillions of cases. What I'm trying to do is elucidate a structure of what happened, and for that, you can take any. Take any uh, case where, say, you know, somebody challenges uh, AR-15 ban and the Supreme Court says, oh, that's fine. Or you take the things that you see are coming where they'll say, um, you know, you have Kavanaugh saying, well, we can't have machine guns because it, they can't be constitutionally protected because we have laws against them. Where first of all, I mean, they're not banned. You can't get one as long as it's old enough or you have a class three license. Um but just so these are people, um, you know, they, they, they've totally become untethered from the text of the document. They don't need to mm-hmm. look. They don't need to consult the document. And so what I'm talking about is the mechanism by which it happens, which you can sort of illustrate, you know, once they once so that the history part that, that you need to know is really briefly this, that so they threw out the first that first privileges and immunities clause they just killed it and said it doesn't mean anything really you know what what it means is you have the right to travel between states without paying a tax or travel on interstate waterway and and that's it so at a certain point then you have a couple of of supreme court justices who are like maybe we're a little hasty and maybe (laughs) some states ought to have to respect some rights like freedom of speech so they've already said well, we can't just say that's a right that has to be respected because we, we killed that. However, what we didn't kill was this idea of due process. Everybody's entitled to due process, right? Well, what's due process? It's process. So they invented something which is substantive due process, which is the part of process that's substance, which, of course, there's none of it. So like an, like an empty cup, <laughs> the, the value of that, phrase is it means nothing and it can't even mean anything but once you have substantive due process then you can say oh well something like the right to say a certain thing in a certain context is part of substantive due process and so therefore it's protected by the 14th amendment so for instance to you know say a certain kind of thing during an election might actually be part of it's not a right to free speech but it's part of substantive due process right so we don't have to respect your right to free speech, but we do have to give you substantive due process, which actually includes this part of free speech that we like and not the parts we don't like. So it's, it's a little like one of those things, I don't know if you've ever done this, where you're making like tomato sauce and you put tomatoes in and you turn this crank and the seeds and the skin go in one direction and the pulp and the flesh and the, the sauce goes in another direction. That's the 14th Amendment. That's substantive due process. Oh, well, carrying a, having a gun in your house, that's part of substantive <laughs> due process, but taking it outside your house might or might not be. Or it might be if it holds 10 rounds, but it might not be if it holds 15 rounds. Or if you can pull the trigger this many times or bump it against you, right? So here's this framework. 
it's not a right anymore. It's due process. And so now you have to, at some point, you know, push comes to shove and they're like, okay, what the hell do you mean by substantive due process? How do we know if something's substantive due process or not? So now we go to step two, which is we say, oh, well, something is covered by due process if it's implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. And so if you read like the, this Dobbs decision, you see concept of ordered liberty all over the place. So what does that mean? Again, empty concept. It can mean anything they want. But what they chose to make it mean is this. In your mind, imagine someplace, Fredonia, a place you'd call a free country. In New country, Hampshire. Okay. No, like in your imagination. Yeah. <laughs> Someday. <laughs> imaginary country, which you would call a free country. Can people there own a gun? And if, or can people be restricted from owning a gun? Can you say in that country they can't own a gun? And you would say, well, no, it's not a free country if they can't own a gun. Therefore, it's implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. But then you might say, well, can they own an AR-15? And you might say, no, that, that's okay. You can imagine a free country right. in which nobody can have an AR-15. So owning an AR-15 is not implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. So now you have this nice filter where you can say, well, I like this. I don't like that. I like It this. almost comes down to subjective interpretation on it's every completely. issue across the board. And it couldn't I mean, even be more subjective than this. If the reality is that it, it all comes down to a subjective interpretation by a lifelong appointed Supreme Judiciary, which there is no recourse to remove them or replace them or to even counsel them and ensure that they follow the will of the people or the will of the document, maybe the issue isn't the 14th Amendment necessarily, but Article 3 of the Constitution as a whole. Well, yeah. So the... the <laughs> The thing about that they've used, though, is to it's this you build this right. idea of legitimacy, and that's what they're doing. So you can say, oh, right. well, they've decided this is incorporated under the 14th Amendment, so I guess that it's okay. And if it's not, then I guess it's not okay. And the thing is, there's this sort of bending over backwards quality to it where you could ask a question and say, well, maybe there's a right to privacy. Is the right to privacy protected by the 14th Amendment? Well, is it part of substantive due process? Well, is it? implicit in the concept of order of liberty. And then there's a, a final part, which is to so suppose you're, you're a justice and you say, well, yeah, they should respect this right. Like you should have a right to discuss things with counsel, you know, out of the hearing of law enforcement. And then you decide, wait, unless there's drugs involved. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so suddenly you go, well, here's, here's the final part. And you end up saying there are balancing tests. Right. So we have to balance your activity, which is implicit in the concept of order liberty, but its exercise is outweighed by um, a compelling government interest in you know, public health. Or protecting the compelling government interest is always a phrase that I have despised at <laughs> every level, because the reality, if good. It's, it's supposed to be a government of the people, for the people, by the people. I mean, you can go on and say the people are stupid, but. How can the government's compelling interest be at odds with the interest of the individual or the people if the government is the people? Oh, I mean, I the people <laughs> like, as mass. No, I, I actually right. see how that could happen. My my only problem with it is that if you have something you're calling a right and it can be outweighed right. by compelling government interest, it's not a right. Right. It's something else. Because a right is always the right to say no. You know, it, it's the right to be left alone in some way. And if the government says, well, yeah, you do have the right to be left alone in this way, unless we need to, you know, 
make people feel like like elections are safe or whatever, whatever excuse you come up with. And so this is, it's completely subjective. And so the court can sit there and go, well, you know, and the, the, the so I, I use uh, an example in the book, which is, so imagine you're at a baseball game mm-hmm. and it's some perennial power and they're playing some, you know, perennial crappy team. And so the guy from the perennial power comes up to bat and uh, he hits the ball and he steps on first base and then the ball arrives. And uh, you're thinking, okay, he's safe, right? But now suppose the first base umpire says, well, okay, you have an expectation of being safe if you arrive before the ball. However, society has a compelling interest in competitiveness. And since your team is usually doing pretty well, we're going to call you out, right? Can you, can you even imagine this? I mean, the country would blow up even more so than Roe v. Wade. People would go crazy. What do you mean he was out? He got there before the ball. What is, what is going on here? So oddly right. enough, though, I think we actually do see that in sports, and I think that's what makes this wow. kind of a really good comparison. Where have um, you seen this in sports? <laughs> it, it, it was actually controversial, and people got really upset about it um, in hockey and football recent in the past few right. years okay. in different occasions, where there was um, a really bad call by the referees. They made the call and forced it, and then kind of realizing got the vibe from the crowd that it was a bad call and would make a phantom call on the other team to make up for it that ended up costing them the game. Okay. And, and people and the, went crazy. I forget which teams it was, but it was a playoff game for right. football. And it ended up determining the outcome of the game. It ended up determining who went to the Super Bowl. Um, <laughs> and in hockey, it ended up happening to the Las Vegas Kings with an incredibly egregious like major penalty that took a player off the ice for the last four minutes of the right. game after they were up and winning the game in a playoff right. game seven. Right. Uh, now those are simple mistakes. The guy just blew the call. I'm saying I'm talking about a situation where no, they make clear. phantom calls like the referees in those okay. sports. They'll make phantom calls to make up for a bad call. Right. Okay. But still, I'm, I'm talking about something where they're just saying, you know what, I, it's clear what happened here, and I know what's going on, and I'm changing the rules on the fly. Because courts do this every day. They just, oh, you know what, yeah, you thought this meant something. It actually means this other thing entirely. Yeah, and, and in baseball, points. especially in baseball, when a pitcher is pitching and gets caught with a foreign substance on their hands and cheating mm-hmm. pitching, yeah. the umpire has discretion. They don't. They're not required to kick them. They get discretion during the game on whether or not to punish them or allow them to right. finish pitching. Right, but the umpire doesn't get to make up new rules. That's the that's the fundamental thing I'm getting at. He right. doesn't get to just make up new rules and sure. have every other umpire forever bound by that. Right. Sure. So, okay. I mean, and here's it, it's really instructive to think about this. Suppose something happens that's never happened in a game before, like. I don't know, maybe this has never happened. The guy hits the ball and it just explodes into powder. Can he go to first base? Can he not go to first base? <laughs> At that moment, the referees have to make a call because the game has to continue, right? Is he out? Is he safe? Does he just keep batting? What happens? So they make one call in that one game. And then you know what? No other, it, it doesn't, nobody else has to abide by that call. In another game, somebody else could do something different. And then at the end of the year, the rules committee sits down and goes, we need to make a rule for this. Sure. Right? And so the way all this stuff should be working is, let's say Congress passes a law, and it turns out it was really badly written, and 
all the judges look at it and say, well, this is what it actually says. And if you wanted to say something else, you'd better fix it. Oh, That's really? what's sure. supposed to happen. That's what happened in California with that what, case. What actually, yeah, <laughs> what actually happens in practice is they just say, well, we're going to redefine some words or we're going to, you know, just say what what this usually means is this, but it really means this over here. So now we get the result. And the Justice Roberts will change the definition of a tax yeah. on a fly. Yeah. So, and what the problem is then every other judge forever until they, you know, grow a pair and, and overturn something, which hardly ever happens. Um, every other judge is bound by this. That's this is stare decisis, right? That that judges essentially make up the laws. So, do you think judges shouldn't be bound by precedent and or, or the rulings of higher courts when they do make these decisions? Do you think maybe a lower court judge should have the power to say, uh, maybe revisit this? It wasn't a good idea, and create a cascade to revisit a precedent. I think, I think that judges should actually say whether this person is inside or outside the law or whether this law is inside or outside the constitution, they should say that. Yep. And then if that's the case, it's not binding on, I don't think it should be binding on anybody else. This is his opinion, but it sends a signal to the legislature that they ought to clean that up. And that, so Jody yep. mentioned this, and it, it's a great case because it just shows how everything's on his head. I think it was actually in Oklahoma. So a guy got accused of rape. And what he had done was clearly, I don't remember the details, but what he had done was clearly out of bounds. But it turns out the way that the rape statute was written, statute was written, it didn't qualify. It didn't cover this case. And so the judge basically said, I have to let this guy, if you're charging him with rape, I have to let him go. If you're charging him with something else, we can talk. But if you charge him with rape, he, what he did is not rape. And everybody went nuts. And they're like, well, you know what they meant. You know what the law <laughs> was supposed to say. And the judge remarkably said, no, it is not my job to say what no. the law should say. It is my job to tell you what whether this guy was inside or outside the law as written. And it is the legislature's job to fix it. And it's like, it was, it was, I almost fell off my chair when I heard this because it's like, this never happens, but it's exactly what should happen, right? The legislature makes the laws. The legislature presumably knows what they mean for those things to say. And if it turns out that they've said it badly, they've said it unclearly, they have nailed things down too tight or left things too loose, it is not for judges to, uh, what was the phrase Scalia used, to correct some supposed. Uh, flaw in the statutory mechanism. That's not their job. Well, it is their job since Marshall in 1803. Well, so AJ, AJ asked a question in chat. He says, do you think that the American legislatures will do anything with these signals? I, I want to rephrase that and say, do you think they can do anything with these signals and these responses? Because I know there is a lot of data and research and polling data that's been done that shows at least in the last 50 years, there's been a significant trend in diversion between the actions of Congress and the campaign promises of Congress and the polled desires of the American people. Um, and we're showing that Congress, like it does not matter how many, how much of the American people when polled want something to happen. It doesn't influence Congress's mode, Congress's actions or direction whatsoever. But if they do just poll those in the top 1% of income earners, 
there's a direct correlation between their okay. desires and the actions of Congress. So do you think, I, I mean, mean I judges think, should be at least in the top 2%. But They should. I mean, but this, this is another conversation that you and I could have, and I'm sure it will be the subject of a future book, which is that I think elections are the problem. I don't think elections are actually a useful solution for anything. They solve one problem, which people, I think, don't understand. Everybody thinks elections are to get the right people into office, but there are no right people. What elections let you do is remove the wrong people from office without shooting sure. them, right? That's the point. It doesn't mean that that's not an option. It just means there's a better no, option on just, the table. It just gives you a peaceful alternative to get that guy out of office. Now, it creates all kinds of problems if the guy's in office for six years, right? So I always imagine like you, some guy, some cops burst into a room and there's a guy, you know, somebody raping somebody else. And he's like, turns to them and goes, no, 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 I get 30 more minutes. Come back in 30 <laughs> minutes, right? Because that's elections. It's like, you know, Sununu gets into office and says, yeah, you know what? I need well, So deal. there's not a lot California does, right? And like very, very rarely do I come across something that the California government or California law has set up that I think is like, wow, that's a good idea. But their recall system um, where, where every elected official in California can be recalled by a petition of their constituents at any time. I think that I think that is a good idea, except you're still you have elections and having been right. through that kind of thing in Croydon recently, you see how <laughs> little how little what happens in one of those recall elections or special meetings or whatever, how little it has to do with the actual facts, how little it has to do with the actual right. issues, how much it has to do with fear and marketing. Okay? And emotion. Like fear right. marketing, and so, emotion. Right. And so I I think there are so many problems with the fundamental idea of elections, right? Just going all the way back to if you are, if people are being elected, it means the people who are in office now have a huge amount of control over, even if they get thrown out of office, who they hand that power off to. So they're, they're to their friends, to their party, to the people, the, the other people in the 1% who will all look out for each other. And so that creates an incentive to accumulate power. Even if I don't have power, my friends will have it. Contrast that with, say, sortition, which is how you select juries. We just take people who meet some really basic minimum qualifications and you say, yeah. you're in office now for two years and then not after two years, which means you have no idea who's following you. So you don't want to accumulate power at all. Right. Absolutely. There, there, so I, I think just the, the very fact that you have elections, you're already screwed. It's just, you know. It's sort of like, you know, we, I know you wanted to. Oh, one of the books coming out soon is called Barefoot Learning. And you said you missed. Absolutely. <laughs> right. And so the idea there about it, just a spoiler alert, is all the technology that you develop for shoes, you know, to stabilize this and keep this from nope. twisting and doing that. It's all compensating for this one mistake you made, which is that you think you design shoes as if your big toe is in the middle of your foot. <laughs> right? and, and once you do that, <laughs> you're done. You can't fix it. It doesn't matter what you do. So this is with elections. Once you actually commit to elections, you're screwed. And there's nothing you can do about it. You can try to make the elections better. You can try to make them more fair. You can try to make them you know, more secure. It doesn't matter because the fundamental idea is wrong. So. No. 
on the notion of barefoot, that's, I, I have been largely barefoot for the past four years at this point, haven't worn shoes and set me at, when wow. I, unless in the office or forced to by circumstance. I've joked that they put all this effort into designing shoes to compensate for the fact that you're wearing shoes. If you were barefoot, your feet are formed naturally to do the thing. <laughs> right. It, well, that is it, right? But as soon as you put on that shoe... And now right. you're jamming, you know, you're shoving your big toe over here and now you can't release <laughs> the energy that builds up. And so now you've got pain. It's not a way of padding and it changes your gait. And then so now we stabilize everything. So you basically have your foot cemented in place. So now your ankle gets all the force. And so you get ankle wraps and, and now your knee gets all the force. And you, got knee, you know, eventually somebody will, will come out with hip bands, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> hip braces. But right, it's, it's that kind of thing that you've made that one initial mistake and you can never recover from it. And one So how do we recover for it? So, so it's like, what was the initial mistake? Was the initial mistake the 14th Amendment? Was the initial mistake Article 3 of the Constitution? Was the initial mistake the, the Constitution? Initial, was the, was the Article of the Confederation a better okay. answer? Like, I, I, yes, I think all of those were mistakes. I think the Articles of the Confederation were a good idea. I think going to a Constitution was the wrong idea i mean fundamentally though fundamentally i think the the whole marbury versus madison thing really was a, a tectonic tectonic it's, it's a huge shift in how the government works you know right. and and nobody really it's sort of a snowball thing you know snowball starts out as it, it's this big and and it starts rolling downhill bigger and bigger and, and bigger and, and, you know, eventually after a couple hundred years the thing is large enough to roll over anything and that's where we are now and then you um, get lochner in new york then you get brown v board of education then you get... <laughs> right and so there, that's actually a thing I, i've written about somewhere else i, I call it core cruxes after uh so Voldemort in Harry Potter, spoiler alert, hides <laughs> pieces of his soul in a bunch of different places. And so to kill him, you have to go get all those, right? So here's what the Supreme Court does. They say, well, there's a bunch of people who really want this, this uh, kind of decision on abortion or this kind of decision on education or this kind of decision on guns or whatever. And so we will give them those decisions, whether they're warranted or not, because now we have suddenly created all these constituencies of people who have a vested interest in saying we are legitimate and we had the power to give them what, what they wanted, right? So what you really need, and this is, I mean, regardless of the issue, the, the thing I'm happiest about right now, I mean, there's two things I'm really happy about. One is that Clarence Thomas said for at least the second time, you know, <laughs> totally screwed the pooch on the 14th Amendment. We should just go back and treat it like it, it means what it says. And so <laughs> that would be awesome. I don't expect to see that in my lifetime, but just for him to be saying that, I just want to send him a box of candy, you know, and say, thank you. Thank you, Justice Thomas. Well, second, you're right. You're right, though. Him saying that has created panic because now it's not Roe v. Wade. Now it's Roe v. Wade. Now it's loving. Now it's every other decision that people care about that had some right. reference to the 14th Amendment in right. the decision. Some of which might be decided in the way that they like using some other rationale besides incorporation, which is just a, a, a horrible, horrible way to do anything. So that's what he's objecting to. He's not saying that the outcomes are wrong. He's not saying we got the wrong answer. He's just saying the way that we went about this, the mechanism that we use for making these decisions is just fundamentally wrong, wrongheaded. 
impossible and not sustainable. That's awesome. That's a great thing to say. I'm so happy that I'm not the only person saying that. Uh, the second thing I'm happy about is you now have a lot of people who are actually in positions of power and influence running around saying, fuck the Supreme Court. Right? Yes. <laughs> yes, <laughs> great. Which is a thing that people have needed to say since 1803. I love saying fuck the Supreme Court. It, it's incredible to like see people on the complete other political side of the aisle from me saying fuck the Supreme Court. Um, but like those same people don't have like the same reason and rationale, which is unfortunate. Um, and whenever I try and explain to somebody, I'm like, I think the two best judges on the Supreme Court are came from opposite political parties and were appointed by opposing presidents and like it's wild. Some of the best writing that I've read on any decisions has been dissents in cases where it was 7-2 or 7-3, and mm. both Sonia Sotomayor and Neil Gorsuch are in the opposition. Okay. Where Neil Gorsuch, who's a Trump appointee, and Sonia Sotomayor, an Obama appointee, agree on civil rights, and the rest of the court disagrees, they're right. Well, Almost universally. Yeah. <laughs> but but here, here's the thing. Again, the, the what makes all this really tricky is that people focus on the ends, and they forget the means. And, and so this is what exactly I'm talking about with core cruxes. If we give you, if we say something about civil rights and you're like, yeah, I like that guy. I want that guy. And I, I like this court. Right. Even if the, the reasoning that they, they, they used to get there either completely ignores the written constitution or more likely ends up giving the court even more power. Because that is a way if I give you, if I'm the court and I give you something that you want, the deal is. It, it's basically a deal with the devil. Well, yes. You know, Brown versus Board of Education. It's like they could have just said, well, we really feel sorry for these students and we really think this is a problem, but it's really not a federal issue. There's nothing in Article 1, Section 8 that says we can do anything about this. So we're just going to say we're sorry. Right. They could have said that, but they didn't. They said, oh, we are going to step in and give people the result they want. But now the cost, what is the cost of that? The cost of that is from now on, forever, we control education. Right. But That's I also feel like, like Brown v. Board of Education didn't need like, – I feel like there are so many ways within the Constitution and within the rights of equality and even within Section 1 of the 14th Amendment where you could argue that separate but equal wasn't equal without having to create or like decide it the way it was decided to create that precedent. Um, well, where does separate but equal come from? You know, I mean, right? What, like, it's <laughs> this is this something that the, a federal court should be deciding? No, it, but right? Like, and, and that's and that's, that's what Tom is saying, by the way. And Dobbs, yeah. he's saying like this is just I, without even saying whether you think abortion is right or wrong, without even saying you know anything about that, you can say it's not. It's this not is a this federal is issue. Our job, right? If if abortion is in fact, you know, a crime, it's murder, and murder is a state issue. You know, well, I mean, I, I, I mean that I think with the abortion issue, it fundamentally comes down. I think the politics of the issue fundamentally come down to whether or not somebody believes it's a murder or not, which exactly. means it's a philosophical debate about whether or not you think a fetus is a life and has rights huh. or not. So. It is a like, philosophical debate, but it is also a, a really 
think about the legal debate, right? So the, the state... Well, to me, the legal debate, the hang-up I have with the legal debate is if you're going to acknowledge that there's these two sides of it, mm-hmm. there can't be a compromise. It's a yes or a no, because murder or not, right. there's no in-between on murder. And so when oh. you do abortion with restrictions or banning abortion with exemptions, you're creating an exemption that allows for murder. Here's, or... here's the thing, Dustin. Okay. Yeah. There is an in-between. So when you kill somebody, it could be manslaughter, it could be involuntary manslaughter, it could be, you know, first degree murder, second degree sure. murder, third degree murder. If you kill certain people, a jury might let you walk, you might say, well, this person will euthanize this person, whatever. Okay. This is basically, there is a set of people who are in a certain club. And once you're in that club, people can't kill you without some compelling government interest. Um <laughs> And the question then is who's in that club, right? And we can define it. That's a political thing to define, who's in that club. Because there are people like, if you are brain dead, are you still in the club? Not necessarily, right? You're still a person, technically. Are you Are you a person if you're like totally brain dead and you're just on machines, okay? And, and your children have the right to say, yeah, pull the plug, he'll die. Okay, did we just murder you? No, we didn't because you were outside of the club at that point. This is a membership issue. And so that is the people are voting who is a member. I'm not saying one way or the other who I think should be a member, but I'm saying that's it's a membership issue. And when you're a member, there are suddenly certain protections that apply to you. And you could actually say, you know what, you could do like, what's the thing that, that, that just cracks me up that you have, uh, what's it called, decriminalization. <laughs> if God is wrong, but if we catch you with it, we're only going to find you. It's like, are you kidding me? Like, is there, if it's not wrong, why are you finding me, right? Right. What's going on there? Uh-huh. Is, is it right or is it wrong? Or should you just leave me the hell alone? And so you could imagine a, a thing where they say, yeah, abortion's wrong, but we're just going to decriminalize it. If, you get, if there, you get caught doing an abortion, it's a $200 fine. There is okay. another specific question in the <laughs> chat here from uh, Jonathan Howe in New York. And this is a really interesting question. And I understand where Jonathan's coming from with it. So... Um, you say you're you're not a lawyer, you're not a legal scholar, right. you're just laying out things that lay out to you. Jonathan is a lawyer. Jonathan is a public defender in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's asking, like, what's the connection between Gideon and the 14th Amendment? Gideon's the right to free counsel, because we know the Constitution guarantees you a right to counsel, but out of the 14th Amendment with Gideon, make them decide that was free of charge. Well, I mean, that's them. Just that's basically the court going. We like this and we don't like that, right? You have a right to keep your arms. It doesn't mean anybody has to provide you arms for free, right? right? Yeah, Bernie so, Sanders. So, right. <laughs> so, you know that that is for somebody to this is this is the court actually not being consistent and just saying, you know, we we like this. We think you ought to have this. And there are other things you'd say it's a right and say, well, if you can come up with it, then you can have it, right? Um, this is, I, I'm not, I wouldn't even say whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, I think for most of, you know, the, you're so far downstream already with so many things that people can be arrested for that they shouldn't be arrested for, things that are illegal that shouldn't be illegal, that it's so easy to ruin your life. If the government's going to make it that easy to ruin your life, then, you know, maybe they have 
some responsibility to, to give you. I, I almost feel like I could make an argument that it's uh, in a compelling government interest to provide you a free attorney, oh. because if they're actually trying to prosecute you and you are forced to defend yourself because you can't afford one, even though you have a right to one appeal on ineffective counsel. Well, <laughs> I, but that assumes that, you know, due process includes that kind of appeal. They might just right. say tough shit. Okay. Um, but again, so, so what is what was the question? What's the connection? I mean, yeah, I, the, so I'm not terribly familiar with Gideon. I'd like the background of the case. Um, I, I do know it had to do with um, someone who was impoverished and could not afford an attorney and mm -hmm. asked the courts to appoint him one. And the courts refused and he was forced to represent himself and was convicted and appealed yeah. all the way to the Supreme Court. And they said, you have to give him a defense. I mean, it, so just, you know, from the fifth grader perspective, I think if you read all, you have the right to this, you have the right to A, B, C, D, and E. And none of those mean anybody has to give you anything. And I think this is one of the reasons I, over the years, I've gotten away from the, I don't even like to use the word rights anymore. I prefer to use consent. And it's partly because even if you try to take a purist approach and say, well, you have a right to a jury trial. It's like, Somebody has to provide you with a jury trial. You know, most right. of the time your understanding right is it's, it's a negative thing. It's like leaving the hell alone. So I think that word has become almost useless for any kind of serious discussion because two people can be talking about rights and they have a completely different conception of what at the mean. same time like the jury box is one of the most powerful forms of activism an individual oh, can undertake by just it, ab it absolutely is and i'm not saying it's a bad thing to have jury trials i'm just saying the word right isn't the correct you know my so my favorite quote probably of all time at this point is you know confucius said that the first step towards wisdom is to call things by the right names i love that idea and so I would say, okay, you know what? The, the, it's a good idea. You could say you, you could have a legislature say it's a really good idea to provide people with a defense if they can't afford one. That's a really good idea, and we're going to do it out of compassion or because we have some end in mind. But it's not a right, okay? Um, you know, in the same way, it's like you we think it's a really good idea that people get educated, but. It, is there a right to education? No, there's a responsibility to be educated. And so as soon as you start... There's a compelling government interest to have the population <laughs> educated in a particular manner. And, and Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and that's what we're seeing. So, but yeah, I, I think this is the, the thing, is that people get away, they, they confuse ends and means. And so, you know, for me, I'm always going back and say, look, are, are we are we talking about the principles that we're going to accept because we believe in them? Or are we going to say, what do we have to do to get some outcome that we like? And those are just two different ways of doing things, you know, and so you, you should pick one and stick with it. But to, to say we're going to do outcome based reasoning, but then we're going to pretend that it's, you know, premise based reasoning leads you to this situation where you're constantly just making up new premises. And that's common law. That's what judges do all day, all day and all night, all and all on weekends. They just make up premises and say, well, this is the rule we're using. But they never have to go back and say, does this conflict with any other rules? Because as soon as you get rules that conflict, you've destroyed the ability to do deduction. It's just gone. This is completeness versus consistency. And I don't know if you're well, familiar with I, this, but... 
Well, I, I think the big question that arises from all of this is you've identified a series of problems. You've identified a bunch of root causes of the problems. Which mm-hmm. one came first isn't as important as which one can be fixed. And right. we can point to the 14th. We can point to Article 3. We can point to the Constitution. We can point to the whims of judges. We can point to Mayberry or any other for, uh, decision where they've done these things. But like the question is... and. This is one of the problems I come all across a lot when talking to other libertarians, especially libertarians running for office. People mm-hmm. who run for office all the time on a platform of here's all the problems, never here are the solutions. And while we can say hypothetically in uh, our little utopian free world mm-hmm. in the future, we'd never had the Constitution, we never had Article 3, we never had the 14th Amendment, we never had Mayberry, these never became issues. How do we fix it now? Okay, so... Thank you for asking. Here's how I'd fix it. Okay. So first thing, if I could do anything, I would do three things. One, I would get rid of voir dire with jury selection. Voir dire is French for jury tampering, right? So this is the selection where you go and you throw out all the people who disagree with the law or that you suspect might disagree with you. Because the whole point of a jury is to represent a cross-section of the, of the community. And so it should be the first 12 people through the door, sit your ass down, and we're going to start the trial. So that's the first thing I would do. Second thing I would do is I would require everything to sunset after, say, five or six or eight years. Pick some number. It doesn't matter. And the third thing I would do is I would say, look, we would like to use a mechanism that approaches consensus. So now, in order to have a new law, you can't pass a law with 51% of your representatives. It's got to be 95%. So if you had juries who could basically say, well, that's a bullshit law. We're not convicting anybody. (laughs) And you have laws where if you make a mistake, it disappears without having to now lobby against all the people who favored the law. And if um, basically you can't get a law that almost everybody doesn't agree with, how big do you think the U.S. code would be at this point? It would be like 20 pages, okay? Because <laughs> how many laws can you think of that 95% of people would agree on? <laughs> um. Not met, not Again, even the second I, I amendment. Think, I think you'd have not even the first amendment. 12. Yeah, I think you'd have trouble getting past twelve, right? The, coming right. coming up with those things. So that's actually what I would like to see. You know, um, on a on a smaller scale, I would like to see things. You know, the, it, it'd be hard to do that. I would like to see legislatures reigning in courts and saying we're we're just getting rid of this whole stare decisis thing. You get to decide every decision that you make applies to that case and that case only. And if you see a problem, come and tell us about it. That is the mechanism. Now the court, rather than becoming, you know, the the entity that makes up rules and usurps the legislature's power, basically is now sort of a, an alarm that goes, okay, you totally screwed this up. <laughs> you need to go back and do this again, right? So those are things you could do, and those are the solutions I would have, and they have nothing to do with any particular rights. They're just trying to get a mechanism that operates consistently and predictably, right? Sure. So I think I've said this to you before, right? So yeah. in, in some sense, my political philosophy is ISO 9000, okay? <laughs> which means you should write down what you're going to do, and you should do it. And if you decide you should do something else, you should write that down and do that. But what you should never do is write down that you're going to do one thing and then do something completely different and pretend they're the same. Right? 
that the old joke if we let the if we let the all of our laws be written by software programmers we'd live in a libertarian dystopia <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah that might be true but um i mean this is all i'm ever really complaining about is just i don't know what the right rules are but i do know i i really love the idea of consensus and while absolute consensus is really difficult to accomplish you could say something like 95 percent. we need 95 percent agreement the idea of a sunset clause to me is a fascinating one because it's it's not even a new and novel idea right <laughs> like it's like, not and, and neither are super majorities they already have things i don't right. know i think they have this in new hampshire like towns if you want to do some kind of tax change it has to be three-fifths you have you need a, a you need two-thirds of both congress uh both houses of congress to pass a uh, constitutional amendment you need right. three-fourths of the states to ratify so super majorities are not yeah. a new idea none of this is new except the idea of saying not even like the idea of saying we're you have to choose between statutory law and common law. You just have to choose. Well, right? I'm just thinking it's it's not even a new and novel idea. And the only the only example, the only shining, stunning example that jumps to mind for me of a law that had a sunset provision was the 1994 assault weapons ban. And thank God for that. And when it sunsetted, there is not political or social will to put it back. That's right. Yeah. So and, and imagine if that happened for almost everything. And imagine if the amount of will required was not, oh, we got 51%, but it was, you know, 95% or even 85% or 80 or whatever. It's just so much would never get, would never happen. You would just. Now, 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 now I'm stuck in a mental where I want to go look back at how did they get a sunset clause into the assault weapons ban? Like, I, that was that's probably something I'm now fascinated to find out. You know, yeah, I, I believe it was. I mean, I, I was out of the country when it happened. We came back, and that was one of the things I didn't talk about. This will turn into a book. It's just I, I came back and I bought a gun, uh, CZ 75, and I was trying to get 15 round magazines. They're like, oh, you can't have those. I'm like, what do you mean I can't have those? <laughs> it's like, what? What it was like, what do you think I could do with two 15 rounders that I couldn't do with three 10 rounders? You know, what this doesn't make any sense, but who the hell are you to tell me anyway? And that was what got the whole ball rolling. Until then, I was just sort of not politically thoughtful at all and didn't really care. And <laughs> that, like, getting suddenly getting treated like a presumptive criminal, that really got to me. I was just like, this is just not acceptable. I don't understand this at all. Um, well, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to actually picking up and getting a chance to read your book once I actually finish fix my Kindle device so I can. That was okay. all on me. Uh, and I'm looking forward to your next book because I said at the beginning of the show, I said it before, I said that Liberty Forum, I'll say it every time. You're probably the smartest person that I have the chance to talk to on a regular basis at the very least that I know at all possibly. And I've learned a ton tonight. I learned a ton every time I talk to you and I'm sure I'm going to learn even more that you've probably forgotten more than I have the chance to learn about a lot of these subjects with the ins and outs of the deep libertarian philosophy. And it fascinates me to learn for you. And where can everybody get a copy of your book 14, how the 14th amendment ate the first time. So it's at Amazon. You can go to bareminimumbooks.com and you can sign up to be notified when new books come out. I, once right. once we get the process going, I'm hoping to get them out one, every one or two months. If you guys are watch, if you guys are watching on YouTube or Odyssey or Facebook or listening uh, in any of your favorite podcast apps, uh, Spotify, Apple, iTunes, LRN FM, in the description there is a link. You can go pick up the book on Amazon. Uh, it's 
I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I wish I got the chance to read it beforehand, but that was all on me and my technological shortcomings because my refusal to upgrade. So, <laughs> uh, but I am definitely looking forward to giving it a read this week, and I'm looking forward to what you have next. And uh, thank you so much for coming on, Ian. Is there any final thoughts you want to leave everyone with? Um, just you know that. Yeah, you know, read the book. It's a, <laughs> it's it's a short book. You'll you'll get through it's it. The bare minimum. Yeah, it's one, so it's one idea per page. I mean, I, I would just if you have time, I'll tell you where I got the idea for the yep. the format of the book, and it was um, David Foster Wallace, the author. He gave a talk at Kenyon College, and they, it was called, you know, this is water. And I read the book and it was like, it was basically a sentence per page. It was like, oh my God, this is so pleasant. <laughs> Reading a book this way, where you don't feel like I'm in the middle of a 12 page chapter and I don't know where I am. And if I look away for a minute and I come back. So I, I've tried to make this the most pleasant possible reading experience, considering the unpleasantness of the topic. That's, that's something libertarians struggle with. Making difficult topics pleasant to discuss, and because yeah. nobody wants to discuss anything unpleasant. Yeah. So this is, you know, as I said, the, the, you read it and you won't be any less angry, but you'll know where to direct your anger. Awesome. Well, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for joining. Um, as a great insightful talk, I look forward to reading this and your next books, and having you on again in the future. All right. Well, thank right, you. Well, thank you again. Until next time, everybody, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for watching. Give a big like, a subscribe, leave some comments in the chat and on the board. Let me know what you thought about the show and what kind of topics you want me to see me cover in the future. And until next time, be free. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Subversive. Make sure to like, subscribe, and turn on notifications to get alerted every time we go live on YouTube. And make sure to leave some comments and reviews on whatever platform you listen on. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And a huge thanks and shout out to our sponsors and the awesome members of the Insurgency on Patreon. If you enjoyed this content, you can join the Insurgency on Patreon by following the links in the description for patreon.com slash and if you can't catch the show live, you can always catch it the next day on YouTube, Odyssey, Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, and wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts every day. So until next time, everybody, be free.